0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit AscendKC.org. Happy Resurrection Sunday. What a joy it is to look out and see all of you here making this a priority to celebrate our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He truly is risen. I always wonder if people are going to be able to respond with that. You know, what's interesting, though, is you look at church history, that declaration that I just made and your response to it has resulted in a number of negative results. The declaration of Jesus having been written, risen has resulted in people mocking the messenger. It's resulted in riots. It's resulted in imprisonments. It's resulted tragically in executions. And yet the fact remains that he is risen, the fact remains that he is risen indeed, but it is not just an affirmation of historical fact, it is actually the pathway and the gateway to true hope. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever pain you are experiencing, whatever darkness has cast upon your life, This is the glorious truth that there is hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because he is king. The reason for that is because he has been crowned. And that is what our focus has been during this Passion Week is on King Jesus. And this morning we get to dig into the fact that he is crowned. And it reminds me of that Netflix series called The Crown that highlights the reign of Queen Elizabeth It's interesting, as you watch that series, you see that constantly Elizabeth refers to her monarchy, refers to the monarchy as the crown. The crown and the monarchy go hand in hand. The crown and authority go hand in hand. In fact, the crown is the symbolic representation of an individual who is qualified to be king or queen. The crown is symbolic of the authority that that individual has. But listen to this, the crown is also symbolic of the benefit to the monarch's people. And so this morning we are going to look at maybe an unexpected passage of Scripture, but I hope that as we do, you will see that the resurrection is what crowns the king the king. And in so doing, it is what offers every human the hope that our hearts long for. Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1? It is at the end of this glorious book. It provides, as some commentators say, even the first eight verses of this chapter, the exclamation point of this entire book. From Genesis to Revelation, the exclamation point is found in the first eight verses, the exclamation point of the story of creation, the exclamation point of the creation of a, a people of Israel through Abraham. Abraham. The creation of the offices of king and priest and prophet, the creation of the church, the exclamation point is found in these first eight verses. And what I would ask you to do is make sure that you have a Bible in your hands and you might have come without one and we invite you to reach in the seats in front of you. You can find Revelation 1 on page 1028. I would ask you to follow along because often people will look at this book that I'm preaching from and think that it is some ancient religious text that is difficult to understand. And while there are sections that might be more difficult than others, what I want to model to you is that the Bible can be studied, the Bible can be understood, and if you will follow along, I hope that you will see that. Let me read these 18 verses and then we will unpack them together. Beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, And partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice loud like a trumpet saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I want to ask four questions that I hope you will ask yourself, and in asking yourself, the answer to these questions will determine where you spend eternity. The first question is, do you see the contrast? Do you see the contrast, and to introduce the contrast, I invite you to look down at verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in, look at what it says. It says, the tribulation. John is not just referring to a life of difficulty. He's not just describing a rough season of his life. By saying the tribulation, he's actually emphasizing a specific and intentional persecution. And in doing so, he plants a seed that reminds us, as modern readers, the Bible was not written in a vacuum. There were historical details, there were headlines, there is context. And the headlines and the context are introduced to us by the fact that there was the tribulation going on. As we continue to read the book of Revelation, as we continue to look at the rest of the Bible, as we continue to look at church history, we know that this was a great tribulation under the Roman emperor Domitian. Let me read to you what one commentator summarizes of his reign. Domitian left his brother to die. He seduced his niece. He killed people for making jokes about him. He was sensitive about his baldness. He had a protruding belly, spindling legs, a wart on his forehead that festered and bled. This is some guy. What's interesting is that history also tells us that he demanded that everyone in his empire called him Lord and God. God. So anyone who would declare that there was someone else that was Lord and God would be an enemy of the state. And you can see that John, the apostle, as a bold declarer of the Lord and God being Jesus, was imprisoned in isolation on the island of Patmos. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. Rome promised peace but delivered brutality and fear. You know, friends, this is the definition of a fantasy. We, we love fantasies, don't we? We pursue fantasies, whether through books or movies or video games or some dream that we have in our life that our reality will change. We, we pursue fantasies because we want to get away from our present reality. And Rome, as an empire, historically promised their people peace. In fact, historians tell us that there's a Latin phrase that summarized a season of the Roman Empire called the Pax or Peace Romana of Rome. The emperors constantly promised something that they would never deliver. In fact, they delivered the exact opposite. And that is often what happens when we pursue this life to escape the reality. Perhaps it's to control our reality. Perhaps it's to deny our reality. Perhaps it's to numb our reality. But we face the reality of this life and often pursue fantasies. You know, the Bible refers to two empires, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that summarizes this. In the Old Testament, there's the empire of Babylon. In the New Testament, there's the empire of Rome. All the Bible is doing is saying, look, there is a world system that is the kingdom of this world. There is a kingdom of God. And they both promise something and deliver something else. Rome promised peace. But delivered tribulation. But look at this next quote the kingdom of God promises tribulation, but delivers peace and comfort and eternal salvation for those who patiently endure. Let me just stop right there and say that is what God promises. He promises there will be tribulation, there will be persecution. When you look at your life and someone cuts you off on the road, that is to be expected. When marriages don't always go the direction that we thought that they would or we think that they should. When couples are barren. When singles who desire to be married end up spending their life single. When you wake up on Monday morning and have a job that you don't look forward to, God promises life is going to be filled with tribulation. But the one who endures patiently The one who looks to Jesus patiently. The one who finds their identity in Christ and in the gospel, God promises you will have eternal life. You will experience true peace. Do you see the contrast? But the contrast is actually in the text. Look at verse 1. John says, This book, this book isn't about being left behind. This book isn't about a rapture. This book isn't about a beast or a mark of the beast. This book is about Jesus Christ. And it is this declaration that sets the stage for the contrast. It is this declaration and how John summarizes it to remind us that the book of Revelation is about the reality of this world and the reality of Christ. Look at the descriptions that John provides. It says in verse 2 that John bore witness. A witness is someone who declares something true. He bore witness of the word of God. The Bible says the word of God is truth. It is absolute truth. Despite what our society and culture says, that your truth is your truth, the Bible says no, God's truth is truth. And he also says the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ declared what was true. Even to all, John says, that he himself saw. He was an eyewitness. Beloved, the contrast is between the world system that offers what it never will deliver. The contrast is between a fantasy that calls itself a reality and a reality that declares itself true. This is the contrast. Do you see it? Number two, do you see the crowning? Do you see the crowning? All four authors of the book of Revelation are revealed in verse four. John, this is the human author, then it says in verse 4, the one who is and who was and who is to come. This is the Father, God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the, the number seven in the Bible is a number of completion or perfection. So this is referring to the Holy Spirit. And then it says from the Jesus Christ, and there's more descriptors here, who is the faithful witness. And then look at what it says, the ruler or the king of the kings of the earth. I love that. I referred to Queen Elizabeth earlier. When she was born, she was the third in line to the throne of the United Kingdom. She was behind her grandfather, George V, behind her uncle, behind her father. And when she was born, England was not overly excited, although they were interested that a princess had been born. But they knew that most likely her uncle would get married and have children, and that would push her even down on the line. But interesting twists happen. Her grandfather died, and of course her uncle became the king, but then her uncle abdicated his throne. And now she was second in line. And on February 6, 1952, her father died, which made her Queen Elizabeth II. In that moment, she qualified to be the monarch of the United Kingdom. At that point, everything that was required of a monarch, monarch was met. She, at that point, was declared the crowned queen of the United Kingdom. What's interesting about this king that we just read about in Revelation 1 is that he has always been God. You can write down Colossians 1, 16 through 19. That before this universe even began, before time even began, he was declared to be 100% God. And yet, when the Trinity decided that there would be this whole creation, that there would be this whole story, that there would be roles that all three of them would play in this story, The Son of God was given instruction. It wasn't until he obeyed completely that instruction that he was crowned king. Look at what it says in verse 4. It says that this was his throne. And Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the ruler of the kings on the earth, was crowned because he was the firstborn of the dead. You see, this resurrection was the crowning of Jesus. He died on the cross for the sins of those who would believe and then rose victoriously, pronouncing victory over death and Hades. And it was at that point he was crowned king. What's interesting is that as we look at human history, there have been plenty who have given their lives for someone else. As we look at history, there have actually been even a few who have been resurrected from the dead. In fact, you can read John 11 for one of those accounts. But no one in the history of the world or in the future of this world will ever give their lives as a ransom for those who will believe will resurrect himself from the dead, never to die again. So because of the resurrection, Jesus is declared to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. What unmatched qualifications. Do you see the crowning? Number three, do you see the characteristics? Do you see the characteristics? This characteristic is a quality that is intrinsic within a person. It is what makes the person the person that they are. So what does this crowning mean? He is the firstborn among the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of this earth. What does this crowning actually mean? Well, I alluded to this when I mentioned the first phrase in verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is often referred to as a complicated book. This book is often referred to as a book of the future events, and it is, but that's not ultimately the point. Ultimately, this is about a revelation of Jesus Christ, and all of the events that are found in this book that describe events that will take place in the future are intended to pull the curtain back of reality of both this life and who Christ is. I remember growing up and seeing people in our neighborhood that I knew were not our neighbors. Usually they would go around in twos and they were well-dressed and they had name tags and they carried Bibles. I remember talking to these individuals a couple of times and I remember usually the conversation started out with Jesus. In fact, often these conversations talked about Jesus who died on the cross, but then the conversation would go to some concepts that I thought, man, I have not read that in this Bible. I met other representatives of other religions that also talked about Jesus, also talked about the cross, but also talked about some ideas that were not found in the Bible, Remember doing some research in seminary and evaluating three of these religions. And while I uncovered many, many differences between what they believe and what this Bible teaches, I found that they all center on one main difference. And that is the answer to the question who is Jesus? Friends, every religion in the world is different than biblical Christianity when it comes to answering the question, who is Jesus and what is the appropriate response to him? Well, John provides both as he unpacks what he saw. Look at verse 4. He describes the Father, God the Father, as the one who is and who was and who is to come. But then in verse 8, in describing what Jesus himself said, Jesus declares himself the one who is and who was and who is to come. In verse 13, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man In fact, would you write down in your Bibles, and if you grabbed one of those Bibles in the seats in front of you, that's our gift to you. Please take it with you, and please write in it. And I know some of you, I've talked to some of you, you don't like to write in this Bible because it's a holy book, it's a a revered book. But listen, the Bible is intended to be a blueprint for our lives. It's intended to be a reference manual, not some ceremonial trophy that you put on your shelf. And so I would encourage you, write this down, because what, what this verse is saying is that this is referring to Daniel seven thirteen and 14. This is the Son of Man, the fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 14, it says that his hair was white. That's referring to Daniel 7, 9, Verse sixteen: A two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth, not a literal sword, but meaning that out of Jesus' mouth will come decisive judgment. That's referring to Isaiah eleven four and forty nine verse two. Verse seventeen: He declares himself to be the first and the last, referring to Isaiah forty four and verse six. Who is Jesus? He is God. He's not your buddy. He's not our co equal. He's not someone that is in a white robe with a blue sash who has Caucasian skin and a flowing brown curly hair with a nicely trimmed beard. That's not who this Jesus is. He is the Jesus with radiant white hair, with eyes of fire, with absolute and decisive judgment, with feet of burnished bronze. He's the Son of Man, the fulfillment of all prophecies of the Old Testament. This is King Jesus. And friends, I think so many times we have a Jesus in our mind that is actually a Jesus of our own design. He's a Jesus who starts off with the right vocabulary. But by the time we start to unpack who he is and what our appropriate response is to him, it's actually something that we've come up with as human beings. But this Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, is a Jesus who transcends all of that. And there is an appropriate response, and it begins by what John models in verse 17. He falls at this man's feet. Oh, friends... The fact is is that we are given such a beautiful picture of the characteristics of Jesus and it should challenge our comfort levels. Do you see it? But then number 4. This is where we're moving from do you see it to do you see you. Because the last question I want you to ask yourself is do you see your charge? This idea of charge is something that often we see in a wedding ceremony. This is a charge that the preacher gives. It's it's instruction. It's instruction to the man and the woman. It's instruction to the friends and the family that are there. It's instruction to be followed. And there is a charge in this section of Scripture by the example and the teaching of John. The first appropriate response is verse 17 when I saw him I fell at his feet look at what it says as though dead this is an appropriate response on our own in our flesh when we are confronted with the majesty of Jesus Christ it is appropriate for us to fall on our faces as though dead There is nothing on our own that is appropriate in our response other than laying there dead. But I love what Jesus says because it doesn't end there, does it? Look at this, verse 17. And remember who this is that is writing. This is the beloved disciple. This is the disciple that John in his gospel says leaned against Jesus' chest. He knows this man. He knows him intimately from spending three years with him. And yet when he sees him in all of his glory, he falls down in fear as though dead. And Jesus does what Jesus does. He reaches out with his right hand and he touches him and says, fear not. What he's saying is, don't fear in your humanity. Don't respond in your flesh, which is appropriate. Don't stay there laying on the ground as though dead. Get up and be in relationship with me. But how can that happen? Well, John has already revealed it, but let's go back to it. Verse five, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins friends what keeps us out of relationship with our creator is our own sinful nature it's not how bad did we sin it's not how many times did we sin it's the very fact that you and i have a sinful nature when we are conceived which by the way that's when life begins Psalm 51 5, David says, in sin I was conceived. When I was conceived, when I became a human being in my mother's womb, I was a sinner with a sin nature. That is what keeps us out of a relationship with our creator. And what John has already said is that in order for us to be able to be in relationship with this majestic Christ, we must be freed from our sins. But how? How? Look at what the text says. Again, what I'm doing is I'm modeling to you how to study this book. This isn't just some pastor standing up and sharing expertise that nobody else can know. It's right here in the text. We are freed from our sins not by attending church on Easter. We are freed from our sins not by having the good works of our lives outweigh the bad works. We are freed from our sins, not by anything that we can do, no family that we're part of, no church that we attend. We are freed, look at what it says in verse 5, by his blood. That is the hope that we have. That is the instruction. Have you relied on his blood to free you from your sins? See, if you have, then you are saved. Let me get more practical about this. You must come to a place in your life where you acknowledge and agree with what the Bible says that you are a sinner. You must get to a place where you realize that no amount of effort on your part can ever come close to saving you. You must get to a place that you understand that it is the completed work of Christ that offers you hope and you must get to a place where you respond. And that response must be belief. It must be repentance. It must be surrendering the throne of your life to King Jesus. And if that hasn't happened, friend, now is the time. Now is the day of your salvation. He will free you from your sins because of his blood. But look at the benefit, verse 6. He will make you a kingdom. I love this. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. The kingdom means that we are King Jesus' people, that we are living for his glory and his standards. And some of you will say, of course, okay, I'll do that, but no, 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 no. This means death to you, death to your desires, death to your standards, death to your expectations, and instead aligning with his See, we get in our lives to a place where we say, hey, I'll follow Jesus until it asks for this, or until it asks for that. But it says that when we are freed from our sins by his blood, he makes us a kingdom. Now, Jesus is our king. His standards are our standards. His law is our law, and we joyfully worship and serve him, which leads to the second part in verse six, and priests... The team will put a quote up on the screen. What does it mean for us to be priests? It means to worship God. And most of us get that. I mean, you're here, hopefully, to worship God. But there's another aspect of being a priest, and that is declaring God's word and God's character to others. This is where most Christians struggle. Most Christians are fine with listening to worship music, with reading the Bible and worshiping God and coming to church and doing Christian things, but how are you declaring God's word and his character to others? Not just by the way you're living, but by your words. When's the last time in your workplace or at your school or in your neighborhood you've actually declared Christ to others? That's what it means to be a priest. Now, how do we do this? Well, verse 3 tells us we read, we hear, and we keep. Now, this specifically is referring to the book of Revelation. But the fact is, is that we see all throughout Scripture, this is how we approach this book. We read it, we hear it, and we keep it. That's how we grow in our understanding of kingdom. That's how we grow in our application of being priests. That's how we grow in the living out the victory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what continues to motivate us? Worship. Look at what it says in verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever. But we also have the anticipation, verse 7, he's coming with the clouds. This is, again, Daniel 7, verse 13 and following, and every eye will see him. What a glorious benefit it is when we have surrendered to King Jesus. But this is our charge. This is our instruction. And I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes because, listen, If all this has been is you listening to a preacher, then this is a religious exercise. If all this has been is you downloading some information, then this has been an academic exercise, but this is a relational exercise. And my question to you is, where are you in response to this charge? If it stays as information... If it stays as religion, then you will be like the tribes of the world that when Jesus appears and everyone sees him, verse 7 says, they will wail. And others of you might be saying, well, how, how does Jesus have the right to declare this charge? How does he have the right to expect me to respond? Listen to what it says in verse 18. Jesus says he's the living one. He says, I died on the cross that we celebrated on Good Friday and that we celebrate every moment of our lives. But he says, yes, I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. I have won the victory and I have authority over it. How does he have the right? He has the right because of what we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Happy Easter.